Today we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 14 to 21. Uh, but before I get to what the text actually says, um, I need to lay a pretty thick foundation um, so that we, um, we understand it correctly and we don't um, veer off to some side thing. Cool. So, uh, thanks. So today, uh, what I'll be talking about is worship, right? Um, the topic of the sermon is, uh, I am a worshiper. Now, um, when I say uh, I am a worshiper, I mean that as a matter of fact. So usually when I preach, I start off with a question. So I, uh, I look at a question, then we kind of go through the Bible to see how we can answer that question. Um, but today, I'm going to start with a statement, right? Um, and the statement really is that you are a worshiper, right? Uh, and this goes without exception. Uh, everyone in here is a worshiper, right? It's not like uh, some of us have uh, in here have found some deep revelation uh, and then those guys are the worshipers and the rest of you scoundrels just have to catch up with the rest of us. No, um, all of us are worshipers. And it's not even a, a Christian and non-Christian thing. Um, the, the Christians and the non-Christians are like atheists, Buddhists, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever you would like to put there. We are all worshipers. A non-Christian horror story writer called H.P. Lovecraft said the following. He said, religion is still useful among the herd, that it helps with orderly conduct as nothing else could. The crude human animal is ineradicably suspicious, and there's every biological reason that they should be. Take away his Christian God and saints, and he will worship something else. So this is not a, a uniquely Christian thing. Um, every person, regardless of what you believe, uh, uh, or whether if you believe in something at all, you are a worshiper. Uh, David Foster Wallace says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now, the debate about why we're like this, why every human being worships, that's, that's really up for debate. Some, some say, you know, it's just the way we were created, right? Some say, um, some say it's, uh, you know, we have an inert desire inside us to uh, give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves, right? Some say as well that uh, the, the reason we worship is because uh, in our, at our core, we are looking to be happy. And the thing that makes us happiest will be the thing that we worship. Uh, Blaise Pascal said the following, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. Um, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. So I, I, I'm not going to spend too much time trying to debate uh, or debating um, the why behind our worship. I'm not going to uh, really dive into that. Uh, what I would like to do instead, um, really because that's where our text takes us, is look at what is worship, firstly, um, and then look at some of the reasons uh, that we, some of the reasons, not the reasons, sorry, some of the, uh, the, some of the motivations we have to worship and how we can identify in our lives what we worship, especially if that thing is not God. Okay, so um, let's start simply by asking the question, um, what is worship? Now, uh, worship is uh, the feeling or expression of reverence or adoration for something. 
Now, some definitions specify and say it's a feeling of adoration or reverence for a deity, um, uh, but I like the definition which has the word something, because something doesn't have to be deity for us to worship it, right? Something doesn't have to be uh, some higher power for us to worship it. Like Lovecraft said, um, remove gods and remove saints, and we will just find something else to worship, right? Um, so the question really is not if we worship, but really the question is, um, what do we worship, right? Um, and how do we know if this is the thing that we uh, worship? Um, what, and, and really, we have to ask ourselves, uh, what is the thing that you ascribe the highest value to? What is the thing that you cannot live without? What is the thing which is more important to you than oxygen is? Us worshiping something is really not in question. The real question is, what do you worship? And I guess a bit of a sidestep question to that is, is what you worship, will it hold, at, when all is said and done, does it hold any intrinsic value? Does it have any depth to it? When I was younger, I heard this quote. Um, I have no idea who said it. Um, so I just kind of put a face there. Um, being passionate about something is never the problem. We are all passionate about something. The problem is that we are passionate about things that will not ultimately matter. So what do you worship? Or rather, how do you know if you worship something? How do you know? Um, now, of course, us being a church, um, my job, our job, is to convince you to worship Jesus, right? Um, right? We're that kind of church. We're not the other kind. Um, our job is to try to worship you, to, to convince you to worship Jesus. If you are outside of the Christian faith, we are trying to convince you to come inside of the Christian faith. And if you are inside the Christian faith, we're trying to convince you to focus your eyes on Jesus. Now, uh, I have seen for myself and other Christians, and, and I don't know why this is the case, but we are just prone to um, not worship Christ alone. Um, and and uh, we are prone to worship other things. And we do this not even intentionally. Uh, we are just prone to uh, move our gaze away from Christ um, for whatever reason. Um, John Calvin says, the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. Men have, a, men have in almost all ages since the beginning of, since the world began, set up imaginary idols before their eyes to take the place of God. Now, the Christianese term um, for when you worship something that is not God is idol. Right? Um, and Calvin here is saying that the human mind is a idol factory, constantly looking for something to worship that is not God. So what I would like to first uh, analyze is um, how do you know when you idolize something? How do you know when you worship something that is not God? Now, lucky for us, the Bible gives us some indicators. Now, this will be unique for everyone. Each one of you will have your own thing. So um, as I speak now, as I give these indicators, um, I'd just like to ask, you know, look at your own life. This is not a blanket thing and say we all kind of worship this. No. Look at your own life and see if these indicators apply. So firstly, the Bible, uh, the first indicator the Bible gives us is money. Uh, Matthew 6 verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what the Bible is saying here is, if you want to see what you worship, if you want to see the thing that you treasure above everything else, if you want to see where you place value on, what you have to do is look at your bank statements, right? Look at the places where you spend money naturally. Now, 
uh, I don't think this is saying that if you want to increase your affection for God, if you want to increase your affection for Jesus, then you need to spend your money on holy uh, things, and that, that will somehow increase your affection for Christ. No. Um, I think what he's saying is how you spend your money naturally gives you an indication of where uh, your treasures lie. For where you place your treasures, the things that you spend your money on, those are the things that you worship. So if you want to see what you worship, look at what you spend your money on. Second thing the Bible tells us is, what for you is non-negotiable? In Luke 18, it says a, a, a rich young ruler comes to Christ and he asks him, uh, how do I inherit eternal life? And what Jesus, tell, Jesus tells him a list of commandments, you know, follow these things. And uh, he responds to Jesus and says, I have kept all those commands. Then Jesus tells him, there is one thing that you still lack. Quote, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then follow me. Now it says that at, as he heard this, he walked away saddened because he was very wealthy. Now, the problem with this guy wasn't his money. The problem with this guy was his money was non-negotiable, right? Even when offered in exchange for his money, the most valuable gift you can give someone, offered immortality, offered life forevermore, offered eternal life with the one thing which is satisfying, the one thing which will uh, please him for all eternity, offered that in exchange for his wealth, he wasn't willing to do it. Why? Because his money for him was non-negotiable. Now, the question for you is, what in your life is non-negotiable? What in your life um, are you just not willing to part ways with? So when I, when I asked myself this question, um, I kind of trivialized it, right? Because I was like, you know, the, the thing which is closest to that non-negotiable part, God would never ask me to sacrifice that, right? No, let me, let me tell you what I mean. So for me, the thing which is closest to that, um, uh, I don't know if, I don't think this is negotiable, is my family, right? My, my wife and child, right? I don't think God would ever ask me to sacrifice that. So I was, so in a weird way, I was like, you know, God would never ask me to sacrifice that. So it, uh, there's no need to have this discussion about, you know, that being non-negotiable. But then God brought to me this thought. If God, for whatever reason, were to decide to ask my child, Micah, when she's growing up, to go to some far-off, unreached place, to reach the people there for the gospel, um, knowing that if she goes there, she's probably going to lose her life, would I let her go? Or would I discourage her? Would I uh, let her give herself for the gospel, or will I stop her? Is for me the safety of my children the one thing I'm not willing to negotiate with with God? Because you see, this is how an idol is formed in anyone's life, right? Um, it's when we have something in our lives that we are not willing to leave to God's will. 
something we're not willing to let God decide about, something which uh, we're not open-handed about. Um, and this thing, as we are then begin to close our hands about it, telling God, you are not allowed to negotiate with me about this thing, then comes forth the birthing of an idol. God is not allowed to have his will and his way about this one thing. God is not allowed to decide about this. When I pray about this, what I'm actually saying to God is, uh, I'm not asking for your opinion. You're just supposed to keep quiet and do what I'm telling you. You cannot have any say about this thing. And then an idol is born. Because we, this is non-negotiable. Have you considered that the things we pray about, God has a right to say no about them? The things we pray about, like... I, I pray for my daughter. Right? I pray, you know, God save her. God invade her life. God keep her safe. God uh, uh, use her for your kingdom. He could say no about that. God keep us safe. God uh, protect my, my wife as she travels. Protect uh, my children. Keep us uh, uh, keep our bank accounts full. He could say no about that. What in your life is non-negotiable? What in your life, when you bring it to God, you're not really asking. You're saying, God, do these things. Whatever that is might be the thing that you worship. Um, the other thing the Bible tells us, um, another indicator to might possibly show us what we worship is, how do we treat other people? We spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, 1 John 4 verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, what this is basically saying is your actions will betray you, right? Um, you cannot say that you love God whilst you hate your brother. You cannot say that God is of uh, ultimate importance to you. He's the most valuable thing uh, and you have not yet seen him when the brother next to you, who you have seen, you do not like. Um, you cannot say that this made in the image of God um, person next to you is not valuable and you want to say that you love God. That does not work that way. So if you want to see what you worship, or rather if you subscribe highest value to God, look at how you treat others. Now, I could go on. There are many indications in the Bible that show us uh, what we truly value at our core. Now, at saying this, um, that being my foundation, we're going to get into the text now. And the real question I want to examine in our text is, how do we get to a place where we worship God and worship God alone? How do we get to a place where God is the one true thing above everything else? Okay. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. It says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every fa family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power 
uh, at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ uh, Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So Paul, right now, is in prison. And uh, he's praying for the church in Ephesus. And as he's praying, at the end of his prayer, he breaks off into what is called a doxology. Now, what a doxology is, it's a short hymn of praise to God in, uh, and this is, this is uh, the official definition. It's a short hymn in praise to God in various forms uh, of Christian worship, often added to the end of catechals, psalms, and hymns. The word doxology is uh, two words put together. The word doxo, which means glory. Uh, it also means splendor and grandeur. And the word logos, which means word or speaking. So what Paul is doing at the end is really his glory speaking. He, it, it's, a, it's a form of, it's a deep form of worship that Paul breaks into at the end of his, uh, at the end of uh, his prayer. Now, this is not something that's uh, unique to here. You find many doxologies in the Bible. In uh, Psalm 72, it says, blessed be the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and an amen. In the New Testament, Jude verse 25 and 20, verse 24 and 25 says, to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority through Christ Jesus, our Lord, before, before all ages, now and forever. Amen. The end of the Bible, Revelation 5.13 says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lord be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now, that is amazing, right? And reading these things, I begin to wonder, how do people get there? I think if we find out how these guys, and especially Paul, uh, specifically in this passage, got to a place where he overflowed into worship, how um, he, he overflowed into glory speaking, right, into a doxology, uh, we can learn about how we can also live in that space, how we can live in a place where our affections for God is so real and so alive that it overflows into worship. Okay, and this is what I think was going on here. As Paul prays for the guys in Ephesus, as he was pleading with God that the things that he's praying for are true, as he was pleading that these things become real to them, he realized how much these things were true and real for him, how much God had grounded these things in his heart. And he, at realizing this, it leads him into worship of, of, of Jesus. As he saw how much Jesus had worked in his life and made these things real and true for him, it leads him to overflow into now to him who was able to do far more than we can ask him to do, more than we can think, and even more than we can imagine. To him be glory forever and ever. And as I read this, um, I, I, I want to be there. I want to have that overflowing sense of worship of God all the time. I want to desire God in this way, that while Paul was in prison, unsure of whether they were going to let him out or they were going to leave him there to die, not knowing if this was his last day on earth while in a hole in the ground for doing the noblest thing on earth, he found it in his soul to worship God and worship him despite of his circumstances. I want that for myself. I want that for you guys. So what I'm going to do for the rest of our time together is to examine what he prayed for what did he pray for for the, 
for the Ephesians that led him uh, to a place where he ended in worship. Okay, uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So Paul starts by praying for them to be strengthened in their inner being, to be fortified inside as opposed to external strength. I find it interesting um, that at reading the Bible, um, almost biasly, the Bible emphasizes the inner man, what's going on inside of you more than anything else really. Um, Why? Because uh, Proverbs 4 verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. Uh, Luke 6 verse 35, The good person out of the good treasures of his heart produces good. And the evil person um, out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The Bible is saying that the heart, the inner man is the real person. What you are like inside is who you really are. Yeah, you can pretty up the outside. You can make the outer man look well, but to Uh, look well put together. But if your inner man is broken, if your inner man is in shambles, if your inner man is weak, then oh, how deep is this brokenness? Everything could be working well outside. Everything could be brilliant. But if your inner man is weak, then everything will fall apart. In contrast, if your inner man is strong, if your inner man is fortified, there could be chaos going on outside but you will be able to stand. It's, I find it very amazing that um, while Paul is in prison, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, he says, he's writing this to the church in Ephesus. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So while Paul is in prison, he is the one suffering. He is the one who is having a hard time but he is praying for those who are looking on not to lose heart. He's not praying for himself not to lose heart. He's praying for them not to lose heart. And seeing this, I see this and I want it for myself. I want that kind of, that kind of existence where um, I don't care what is going on on my outside. If things are, if my heart is strong, if my heart is fortified, regardless of what's going on outside of myself, I will be okay. Now, how do we get there? Now, uh, I think in in fortifying the inner man, there is great benefit in reading your Bible, of course. Um, There's great benefit in praying more. Um, There's great benefit in being in Christian community. But let us take a look at what the text says. In verse 16, it says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man. Now, Christian activities are good, right? We should read our Bible. We should come to church. You should pray. But if the spirit does not come and ignite those Christian activities, if the spirit is not working through those Christian activities, then um, it is all a waste. Um, these things, Christian activities, praying, reading your Bible, are like firewood that we need to stack around our hearts. But the Spirit is the one who needs to ignite those things. 
He's the one who needs to bring those things to life so that we can, um, uh, so that uh, our inner man can be strengthened. And when our inner man is strengthened, we can be like Habakkuk, where when things were going bad, he could say, though the fig tree, um, Though the fig tree should not blossom, no fruit be on the vine. The, uh, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yield no food, no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And even when things are going well, like Augustine, we can say, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of, the, of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are true and so, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. You who are outshines all light. You who surpasses all honor. Oh my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. So what happens when you strengthen our inner man is that we will be able to worship God regardless of our circumstances. Okay, second thing that happens. Uh, reading from verse 17, it says, uh, this is uh, Ephesians 3. So that, it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, um, and to know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I find this interesting, um, and this is classic Paul. Paul says, um, first he says, I want your inner man to be strengthened. Then he says, he prays for strength that um, we may have strength to comprehend the love of God. Now, he then goes on straight afterwards to say that, but this love of God surpasses all knowledge, right? So he's praying that we have strength to understand something which is not understandable, Right? He's praying for us to have strength to comprehend something which is not fully comprehensible. Right? And, and, and I think the reason he does this, so I'm a thinker. Right? I, I, I love to comprehend things, and the more I understand something, the more I, uh, I feel very confident in it, and I can speak about it with confidence. But I find that the, if I'm not confident about, about something, I'm not going to talk about it. That's just how I am. Now, I have found... Uh, I've tried to apply the same logic of understanding everything to um, the Bible. And I can tell you right now that uh, the love of God surpasses all knowledge. I've tried to understand it, and it surpasses my knowledge very much. Now, it's not that the love of God is nonsensical. It's not that it is reckless. It's not that it is uh, not logical, but it just seems a little too much, right? Um, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. So when Micah was born, uh, my firstborn, uh, we were in the hospital. Uh, we had to have a C-section, all that. And uh, so the first person Micah was given to was me. And uh, now that experience, that experience is, was a spiritual experience in itself. It led me to worship God just, just by that. But you know the thing that really hit me about that was when I look at my Bible and I read that when Jesus came, um, yes, he came as a person, but not just as a person, but he came as a baby. He came just like this defenseless, very dependent um, baby, this very vulnerable baby. Now, 
it just blows my mind that the, the creator, the inventor of oxygen had to learn to breathe, right? The, the, the inventor, the creator of words had to learn to speak. And you know why he did that? He did that because he loves me. He did that because uh, he, he wanted to be relatable. He was like, I need to become a human in order for me to be able to relate with this person. Now, when my mind begins to comprehend this other aspect of the love of God, what that does for me is it dives me deeper in worship because I've, understand another, I've understood another aspect of the love of God. Something else a little more menial that drives me into worship is food. Um, now, I, I love food. I do. Um, it's, just, it's just, I just really love food. Um, and I don't know if you've ever considered this, but have you considered how amazing it is that God made food with flavors? Right? He didn't have to do that. He, he could have made, made food this cardboard, bland-tasting substance which uh, has all the nutri- nutritional value that we need to survive, but tasteless, right? Have you considered that taste has no nutritional value at all? It is just for your pleasure, right? Now, I was in Cape Town. Um, I just flew in recent, uh, like yesterday, and I had these ribs that just led me to worship. <laughs> right? Like, they were amazing. Now, now, guys, God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. How, how loving is our God that he would make something which has no point besides our pleasure? It has no nutritional value at all, but it is just aimed at our pleasure. And when I comprehend this, this just dives me deeper into worship. Now, uh, on and on I could go, um, God has put, and day on day as I read my Bible, as I hear people confessing and talking about how much uh, they love God, God has done this for them. I see a new aspect, a new side. I comprehend a new side of God. And what this does is it dives me deeper into worship. So what Paul prays for for the Ephesians is a twofold thing. He prays that their hearts be strengthened so that external circumstances don't affect their worship. And he prays that their comprehension be deepened so that they can see God's love in everything around them and that would make them worship in everything that they do. Now, uh, when I wrote the sermon, I was thinking of, a, you know, what would be a good way to land this, right? What would be, a, uh, what, what is that silver bullet I can give you, right? That would solve this immediately, right? Um, uh, no, we can maybe ask you to come pray and then, you know, you can leave a worshiper, you know, um, or we can uh, ask you to read your Bible and, you know, you become a better worshiper. But in thinking about it, I realized that there is no silver bullet for this, right? There is no quick fix for this, right? If you, if you found that you worship, you found that you worship other things that are not God, you find that you, you've idolatized, I, I don't know if that's the right word, if you have idolized, that's the word, you have idolized things around you that are not God, there is no quick fix for that. You will need to go around out weeding out these weeds in your life and then come back and do it again probably a week later. If you found that your, your inner man is weak, there's no quick fix for that either. 
right? Uh, yes, read your Bible more. Yes, pray more. Yes, get into Christian community. But uh, this is a long, drudging walk you need to get onto. If you found that your comprehension of the love of Christ is just shallow, this is not, there's no quick fix for that too. There's, there's a long road of actually seeing God working in your life, in other people's lives around you. Uh, that's where you begin to comprehend the love of God more. So I, I can't offer you a quick silver bullet for this one. Um, but do you know where all of these things are done? Where all of these things are done? It's in life groups. In life groups, you get to see uh, other people confess uh, about their places where they have idolized things and uh, how they're walking out of it. Uh, you get to see how God has strengthened their inner man, how uh, there you, you get to read your Bible more, you get to pray more and be prayed for more. Uh, you, will get to, uh, you will get to see God's working in other people's lives and be able to see his love actually working through their lives. This only happens at life groups. And if you're thinking, dude, half the times you preach, you're trying to get us into life groups. Uh, no, every time I preach, I'm trying to get you into life groups, right? Because here's the thing. Once you get saved, once you get justified, when God saves you, the next thing that happens is called progressive sanctification, which is a long walk of God weeding out the sin in your life, getting you to a place where you are holier. And where this happens is in life groups. It's not here. Right? Uh, I'm here for maybe 30 minutes. You come and worship for a little bit. But this is not the place where your life will change. This is not the place where you will learn to worship God more. This is not the place where you will uh, deepen your love for him. It's in life groups. Now, the excuse is always, look, I don't have the time. Um, I've got important things happening. Um, I, I'm very busy. I can't do life groups. Now, my humble rebuke to you would be make time. Make time. Because whatever it is that you are placing above uh, your deepened worship of Christ, whatever it is that is non-negotiable to you in replacing your worship of Christ, whatever that is, it is possible that is the thing that you actually worship. So make time. 